That was wonderful. Thank you, thank you. It's good to be with you in the morning. And I want to welcome the folks at the venue and over in Cactus. Y'all, when you show up for church, I, every once in a while my wife and I are out front and serving as greeters. And I notice that everybody comes as a family or, 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 or somehow family connection. Not everybody, but I mean, sometimes we come as singles. But even as a single, we, we represent a family. We all came from families. And our church is very interested in that. So we want to focus on that today. And you say, duh, it's Kimmel. What do we expect him to speak on? That's what he speaks on all the time. Well, you know, I could take it personally uh, when, because I, I actually struggle sometimes when I speak here because I think, oh, man, I'm between... Rasmussen, and every once in a while, Del Hussein, and they're kind of expecting, I can't be them. I can only be me. God has anointed me to talk about how we transfer the gospel through family, and if you'll allow me today, I want to do that with us, since we all come from there. Thank you. Because family's tough. It's very complicated, a lot more complicated than I think it's been in the past. If I, could, if I could make an analogy of what I think it's like to be a family today, it's like putting together a very complicated picture puzzle, except we've lost the cover of the box. So we don't know what the finished product's supposed to look like. Somebody took out all the end pieces, which is where you want to start, and somebody threw some pieces in this box that don't belong in this picture. And that's family today. And, and even though we may have given our heart to Jesus and we want to raise our family for him, the, the, the litmus test of how we're doing is Sunday morning and getting our kids ready to be at church on time. And some of you just did this this morning, and you know what I'm talking about. We raised four children. Our son Cody is here uh, helping to lead in worship this morning. He's graduating from Dallas Seminary here in May. But... <laughs> But we got them for years, for Sunday after Sunday, we were getting them ready to come out here to Scottsdale Bible Church. And, and our kids, I don't know what it is about children. All the other mornings, they're up before you want them to be up, waking you up. Sunday morning, they want to get some extra sleep. They're in a coma. No, you don't get extra sleep. We've got to go to church. We've got to learn about Jesus. Come on, get up, get up, get up. And then all the other mornings, they just woof down their Captain Crunch cereal. Sunday morning, they want to experience their cereal. We don't experience anything. Get that stuff in your face. Hurry, hurry. We're, you know. And then when it's time to get ready, pick out an outfit, suddenly they want to go you know, uh, like they were dragged to church, look. And, and, you, and they, they do stupid things. Don't, no, we don't spike our hair for Jesus. We don't do that. And, and, and then your daughters want to walk in. You're not going to church in that skirt. Absolutely no way. You get, and so now there's fights going on between them. And the wife's trying to help get the kids ready. She didn't get her makeup done. So she's doing that on the way to church in the mirror and the thing. And it looks like the, you know, the Joker did her makeup for her. And then you get to church and everybody's back. And you're running late. And then, oh, 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 oh. here's the ultimate one. This happened to us several times. Where you're just strapping the little infants in the car. And they have a total nuclear meltdown. Just so you know, why did you do that now? Why didn't you wait till you were in the nursery? Now we got to go. <laughs> and so you got to go in and you got to power wash them. And no, oh, so you're late. 
Then you finally get there and you're thinking, get your Bible, get your Bible. You can't learn about Jesus without your Bible. Come on, hurry up, kids. Get your, get your, get in. And, 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 and then we just, and then we finally see an elder agree. Oh, isn't this a wonderful day to come to church together? <laughs> yeah, for who's kidding who? We, everybody knows that most of us put on our evangelical spanks when we come to church <laughs> to hold in our protruding spiritual tummies and try and look the part. I threw that in for venue and... And cactus, I thought they'd like that line. <laughs> so we, we need help, don't we? We need help. And yet, in spite of all that, God had a plan for family. And you might be amazed just how huge of a plan he had. As always, we like his help when we, when we look to the word. Let's do that right now. Let's ask him for help. Lord Jesus, we're, we're, we're living and trying to raise our families in an era in history where some people worship family they, they require of it something it could never give and nothing it was, something it was never supposed to represent in their life, their reason for living. And others, uh, our culture looks at family as an afterthought or frames it as a burden or wants to turn it into an extension of our egos. And for many people, we come to church and when we think of our family, we're disappointed or we have a lot of regrets. Dear Lord Jesus, give us your eyes today to see family the way you do and, and give us a renewed commitment to create in our families an extension of your love and a haven for your grace. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Now, if you have your outline in your bulletin, you want to follow with me, the first point we're going to make is mainly the main point we're trying to make, and the other three are supportive of that. And that is this, that God's love is best transferred through spiritually thriving families. God's love is best transferred through spiritually thriving families. In fact, that's how he planned it from the very beginning. In the word of God, and that, that's what we build our case from. I'm not, I'm not going to just give you my opinion. I'm going to drop a name. God said in the beginning, you know, he, he laid this out in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In fact, Genesis 1 and 2 are two versions of the same account, the same story. There are two versions of the creation story. And it's kind of looking at the same event from two sides of the street. And, and in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it, it said, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So God created men and women to be his image bearers. Then you go to Genesis chapter 2, the second account of creation, and he's talking about these men and women. In verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that a man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him. Skip down to 24. Therefore, the man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So God created marriage. Then you go back to Genesis, the account in Genesis chapter 1, and, and he says, and he, God blessed them, and, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. God made a family. So he made image bearers and men and women. He wanted them to get married. He wanted them to create children so that they would have a family. And then in Genesis 1.28, he says, now fill the earth and subdue it. And that words, and, and, and so now those image bearers are supposed to go out and imprint the, the creation that God had with his power and his presence, his love, and his mercy. 
The word there for subdue is an interesting Hebrew word. Called, it's pronounced kabash. You've heard that word before. And, and it's got a lot of interesting layers to it, nuances to it. In fact, it's a kind of a, um, it's a troubling word if you get into it. And, and, and there's a lot that has to do with what follows that and our responsibility to steward the environment and all that. But it also has to do with the fact that it, it, it's a tough word because it's just, I'm putting you in a globe and on a planet that just by its very nature is going to, it's going, you're going to have to be strong and determined to thrive in the middle of it and to do it properly. And, you, and, and then he, God knew that, that they were going to turn away from Also, we're going to be in an antagonistic culture that is going against our, our belief system. So, so he wanted us to do that. Now, now think about this. God did not make a country. He didn't make a political action committee. He didn't create a university or a Bible college or a seminary. He didn't build a country club. He made a family. He, it was, he was very determined in his strategy from the beginning was that his love and his kingdom agenda would be transferred through the, through the, the organism of a family. He made a cradle-to-the-grave entity. And so with ever-increasing numbers of image bearers flowing out of strong homes of marital oneness, God would be able to expand his kingdom and rule over the whole earth. The, the, chapter 3 is about the sin that entered the earth, you know, that, through Adam and Eve. So the first family he made had some struggles. And then after that, there are several chapters in Genesis that just show, it lists literally hundreds of family names. And then God dialed in on one particular family, Terah and his son Abraham. He says, now I am going to take you as a family and really come up with something so I'm going to give you my, my ceremonial moral law and, and so forth. So here comes the, the Jewish nation. Now, some say he made a nation. No, he made a family that became a nation. It was all about families. And then when you read the history of Israel, it's all about making sure that family names are kept in place and so forth. Family was very important. He raised up a family, a, a, a godly righteous family, to, to lead his rescue of Abraham's children from Egypt, the family of Moses. We know his parents' names. And then he raised up Jesse's son, David. And Jesse was this godly, righteous man. And he, and he, he made him king. When Jesus was sent to the earth, he, he could have sent him to a rabbinical school. He could have had him raised by a bunch of, of prophets. No, no, no. He sent him to a family. He wanted him to have a mother and an adopted father. Jesus was an adopted child by Joseph. When Paul weighs in on his letters, he often recognizes different families that make up the different churches. The point is, and I hope I've made it clear, from the beginning, God configured his heart and his love to be transferred through families. Now, the New Testament created a new covenant called the church. And he wants his image bearers to come to the church. It's the other cradle-to-the-grave entity. But let's make sure we understand exactly what, how God configured the church to be successful. It has to do with the family showing up. In fact, let me give you a great definition for family. If you get this, and this is all you get, it's going to change a lot of how you view your own family. And it, my favorite definition for the family comes from the late Pope John Paul. He referred to the family as the domestic church. 
He says it's the smallest church out there. So you moms and dads are pastors and pastorettes of the smallest church there is. You grandparents oversee a couple of small domestic churches. That's why we come to church representing these families. And, 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 and he wants these domestic churches to thrive so that his image bearers can grow. And, and I believe that, that really what's happening in our families is really determining everything else, including what's happening in our churches. When you look at all the different areas that people focus their attention on to try and help in, in our country, and I always think, you know, if we went back to the source of all these entities and we corrected the family and made the family stronger and healthier, we could actually upgrade and, and, and raise the stock value of all these other entities. For instance, let's take the church. I believe that the strength of the family determines the health of our church. We as elders and pastors here at Scottsdale Bible Church are absolutely convinced that strong churches don't make strong families. Strong families make strong churches. We've got that. It's vital to how we're doing what we're doing because we believe Scottsdale Bible's influence in this community is only as, 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 as healthy as the health of the family showing up on Sunday. And that's why we want to do more than just lip service to the whole idea of having strong families. We want to be proactive in helping them. Not only does the, the strength of family determine the health of the church, it, it determines the influence of the gospel. Churches can have all kinds of out, uh, uh, programs for, for, to share evangelism. But listen, there is no debate. The most effective way to, read, to lead anybody to Jesus has always been have them born into a home with godly parents. It's always been the most effective. Same thing with discipleship. The most effective way to disciple anybody is have them born and raised in a family with parents who follow and submit their life to God. And so we as a church realize that we must come alongside and be deliberate on this. But not only is this the strength of the family de determine the health of the church or the influence of the gospel, it determines the impact of world missions, the impact of world missions, the conscience of our political leadership, the character of our military and our first responders, the strength of the family determines the heart of our educational system, the ethics of our scientific community, the morality of our arts and entertainment, and the integrity of our business community too. Because all those people come from families and the value system and the character and the heart that they have was molded inside a family. So it behooves us to have be, be deliberate about what we're doing at home. However, and you knew I was building up to a however. In recent decades, the relationship between the family and the church has morphed into a bit of an unhealthy dynamic that, that's undermining God's creative plan to use the family as his major tool for launching a new generation of image bearer, bearing followers of Jesus. But let me give you a quick history to kind of put this in context. Let's go back just 75 years. And 75 years ago, we'd gone to war, World War II. And um, during that time, we had increased our mechanization of our country. We'd also, at that time, we're going through a major morph in our ability to um, grow crops and feed people with fewer folks. We had much more sophisticated farm equipment. So people that were living in rural areas and, and farming now found themselves moving to the suburbs, to the factories, as we move into much more of an industrial uh, country. 
Now, in the process, the churches, that they, they were used to going to a church that might have a handful of people there that might have a pastor that's visiting. Now in these, these metropolitan areas, they had churches that were not only big enough to afford a full-time seminary trained senior pastor, but a full-time seminary trained children's pastor or youth pastor. Well, for most parents, it was just in time. In fact, let me go to script to make this point just as succinctly as I can. The demands of a competitive marketplace, the rise of basic standard of living, greater academic expectations, quantum leaps in technology, and easy access to new forms of information and entertainment meant that the ability for a parent to frame and manage their child's values and beliefs were suddenly up against monumental competition. Add to this the movement of both parents to the workforce, a protracted era of divorce, and the loss of childhood naivety regarding the harsher sides of culture, and parents suddenly felt like they were outgunned, especially in the area of spiritual priorities in the home. No problem. They realized they had ecclesiastical professionals at church that had forgotten more about the Bible than both parents knew collectively. Add into the mix state-of-the-art programming by Pied Piper-level leadership, and it was easy to assume that those things being left blank at home could be filled in by the professionals at church. Are you tracking with me? Is this making sense so far? Without meaning to, the growth and sophistication of children and youth programs at church unwittingly created a toxic codependency between families and churches. There was a time when parents knew that if they didn't take the point position in leading, teaching, and grooming their kids morally, spiritually, and biblically, no one else would. Generations of parents armed only with the King James Bible and a huge spiritual commitment did just fine in passing on a spiritual legacy. But with the growth of metropolitan churches, parents suddenly realized that they had these amazing minds and tender-hearted leaders at church ready to carry the spiritual heavy water for them when it came to the kids. Now, let's be very clear about spiritual leadership and training in the home. When it is done effectively, it requires a lot of time, commitment, and focus by the parent. But if you're already out of wind, out of ideas, and at your wit's end emotionally, the professionals at church suddenly become more than someone you feel has your back. You'd prefer they have your job. Walking carefully and conscientiously by faith on behalf of one's children isn't impossible, but it's clearly demanding. Anytime we can have someone come along and lighten our load, especially when we're feeling overwhelmed, it's real easy to get into the habit of handing, uh, handing him or her the entire load in the process. Now, it, now it, it's, it's one thing to become a careful student of the Bible on behalf of your children when you feel like you absolutely must. It's quite another thing to do it when you know you have such incredible horsepower to cover this base for you at church. Put this child in a Christian school and the inclination for the parent to want to hit the cruise control button on their biblical leadership and learning curve can sometimes grow even stronger. Now, all this to say that little by little, parents began to subcontract the spiritual heavy lifting to the professionals at church and their parochial schools. And feeling like this base was adequately covered, they could concentrate their attention on providing a better lifestyle and creating some fun memories. The parents' job shifted to offering occasional biblical sound bites and a full-time commitment to overseeing their children's spiritual report cards. 
The kids' uh, religious lives became more of a performance over which mom and dad presided. The parents' focus became more about the child's outward behavior, sin management, and spiritual image control, which is the logical conclusion of a subcontracted arrangement. Too bad none of this works. It doesn't work. You cannot transfer the heart and passion of God academically. But we were under some delusion. That was a combination of thinking that if we get the right information in their heads, they'll get it. And we're overwhelmed anyways. We're outgunned. We're out of our league. We need more specialization. We need seminary advanced degrees to get this. Now, let me ask you something. Think about this. Who would put a thought like that in our minds? Does that sound like something the Holy Spirit would prompt us on? You're outgunned. You're in over your head. There's no way. You've got to know more. There's absolutely, it's just a matter of time. They're going to, is that something, something like, like he does? No, no. We have been being prompted by the forces of evil and darkness. Now, every once in a while, we've pulled over to the side of the road and asked somebody for directions, right? We've all asked for directions. At least we're supposed to. Our wise one is two guys. One thing I want to make sure when I ask somebody directions is they know where I'm trying to get to and they know how to get me there safely. We've been taking directions from a force of evil that not only knows where we need to go but doesn't want us to get there. He wants to run us off a cliff. He wants to destroy our families because he knows how God laid this thing out. He knows that the best bastion for the heart of God and the love of God is a loving Christian home. He knows it. And so he works over time to try and destroy it. But, but for, for a lot of us, well, we're, we're committed to the Bible and we're committed to the truth and we're committed to the doctrine and we're committed to the church and on and on. So he knows that. So what he wants us to do is just claim half the story. He wants us to get all the truth and information right, but forget the heart part. And in the process, everybody loses. So our churches fall into one of two categories. They're either a big spiritual ER and we come to broken and battered to get help. And by the way, I sometimes come broken and battered. I'm glad we have a spiritual ER here. I'm glad we have people who I can turn to when life has got the best of me and I don't know what to do. And sure, the church is always going to have a spiritual ER, but we knew if that's all we offered, then that becomes a spiritual health care system of broken, battered people that stay broken. So we said, no, 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 let's start a fitness center. And so there's a big evangelical movement. We're going to get a great fitness center at our church. We're going to teach the Bible and we're going to teach the orthodoxy and, and all that stuff. We get and, and, and try and get these great programs going and bring in these sharp people. But here's our bad habit, once again, as evangelicals. We go to the, the outfit store and we get the latest workout outfit for evangelicals. And we stand and pose in the mirror at the workout center and watch the professionals do all the hard work. They're the ones that we expect to get on the elliptical machine. And God says, no, that won't work. It's us that get on that. We're the ones that have to work out. Already, I don't like the sound of this, Tim. Well, you know, I did say, I'm straight up. I'm putting the cards up. Raising godly, righteous kids is, is demanding. There's work to it. But I'll tell you something that's a lot harder is not raising him, not doing the work. 
trying to deal with a debris field of negligence. The, 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 the downside of us not stepping up and doing our responsibilities as parents and grandparents is so overwhelming that it makes the actual efforts of, of trying to represent Christ to our kids look like a cakewalk. Now, they've done some studies, and they, they, they've studied families. They say, okay, let's, let's work backwards here. Let's look at families who raised kids, and those kids went on into the next generation with a really embracing the faith. Is there anything those families have in common? So they studied them, and uh, LifeWay did this study out in Nashville, and, and they studied lots of families, Christian families, and they found out, yes, those families felt they, they seemed to have two things consistently in common. The first one was the parents were trying to be conscientious spiritual leaders in the home. They went to parenting courses. They read parenting books. They, they might not have read the right stuff. They might have done it all wrong. They might have, you know, Darcy and I did, made a ton of mistakes in our role. But the point was that the kids knew my parents are trying to do their job. They're serious about it. Whether they do it right or not, they're serious. That was the first one. Second one was those families were always outwardly focused. They were the kind of families that made the people around them better. They were always dialed in on the needs of other people instead of just working on their own little kind of a myopic view. And so we need to have that as God's image bearers. We need to see that he wants to use our families that way. So God's love is best transferred through spiritually thriving families. Look at number two. God's love is best captured through churches and homes that reflect his heart. Follow me for, to a church for a minute. It's not this particular church. Let's, let's pick a different church. The address is prominent. The architecture, inviting. The facility, state-of-the-art. The pastor, pedigree. The greeters, warm. The bulletin, four-color. The seats, comfortable. The flowers, fresh. The musicians, this side of professional. The song selection, God-focused. The video setup, gripping. The sermon, theologically orthodox, biblically layered, and personally inspiring. Meanwhile, you dropped your kids off at departments where the professionals on the staff are culturally savvy. The rooms are age-appropriately decorated. The teachers are prepared. The curriculum is biblically strong. The worship is spirited. This church is working overtime to get everything right. Now, join me as we follow home one of their committed families. The house is comfortable. The finances are adequate. The parents conscientious. The children respectful. The worldview is Christian. Nobility is prominent. Obedience is expected. The Bible is the standard. Prayer is daily. Education is thorough. Hard work is typical. Traditions are honored. Individual interests encouraged. A positive commitment to church is assumed. This family is working overtime to do everything right. This church tried to think of everything when it came to carrying out the work of the ministry, and the parents tried to do the same. Would you say so far these families sound, this church and family sound like this would be a great place to go and grow up? You know that I'm putting you out on a limb when I just asked it. You know I am, and I'm going to cut it off. Yeah, they do sound like, that, that sounds like a very conscientious church and conscientious families. There's only one thing missing in both this church and this home. They don't have a heating and air conditioning system. That's all they left out. 
So when you're trying to worship or listen to the sermon or get instruction or leadership from the parents, the, the room is 35 degrees Fahrenheit in the winter and 102 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. It's the same for these homes as parents and family members try to conscientiously live out their Christian convictions. Regardless of how much they try, it's extremely difficult for the people within this home or this church to respond well to all of the spiritual efforts being done on their behalf because the contrary atmosphere has negated much of the right actions. Are you with me on this? Does this make sense so far? Now, now, Obviously, no modern church or family dwelling would be built without a heating and air conditioning system. But from a spiritual point of view, that's exactly what's going on in many churches and homes. We've kept the everyday priority of God's transforming work of grace out of the primary blueprints for how we do what we're doing spiritually. So activities... And accomplishments and assumptions can be simply busy work without the context of, the rela of relationship in a family or a church. It's God's grace lived out that creates the kind of atmosphere where his truth can be appreciated and appropriated. Now, this is, by the way, this isn't a put down to anybody or anything or any church. It's just an observation. We need to make a place for grace. God's grace is supposed to be the spiritual climate control system of the relationships within our families and our churches, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. It's what Jesus used to define the relationships to his team of disciples. I mean, think of Peter. Peter's first name when he met him was Simon. It, it, was, it was a pejorative name. Simon back then meant flip-flopper, unreliable. He immediately renamed him the rock, Peter, Petros. What did Peter end up being in Jesus' life when all hell broke loose? A flip-flopper. He lived up to his nickname. But Jesus extended him grace by, first of all, telling him this was going to happen, and then by afterwards, letting him know, I don't doubt your love for me. You're going to stand strong. I don't doubt that. And think of all the people that he extended grace to as he, you know, the woman at the well, um, the, the woman caught in adultery, Zacchaeus, the crazy man in the tombs. He had grace always in place. And that was the, the, the climate, the, the atmosphere. God's transforming work of grace is the factor that most determines the ambiance between people's hearts. It's the power and presence of God's grace working through the lives of the people running a family or a church that inclines the folks on the receiving end of these efforts toward the greater message of the gospel and a personal desire to bring the best out of each other. Think about it. When you, when you, when you go to home, or even right now at church, you can't see the air quality, but you can sense it. You could sense it. It, it. In fact, some of you do, even during the thing. You get up and you go to the guys about, you need to turn the air conditioning down, you need to turn the furnace, whatever. <laughs> you know, because our bodies can sense it right away. Your physical system immediately records if there's something wrong with the environment. If a person is freezing or burning up, it's very difficult for him or her to appropriate whatever else might be going on, even if it's something being done, said or taught for his or her greater good. And it's easy for churches and families to quantify their beliefs, doctrines, biblical priorities, but grace is something that is measured, is, isn't measured the same way. 
It's more experienced through the quality of our love and the commitment to each other. Biblical orthodoxy is a lot about what we know. Grace is more about how we come across. A biblically focused family and church is often understood as something we do. A grace-filled family and church is more often understood as something we are. Does that make sense? I hope I'm tracking you. You're looking at me like, are you, are you with me on this? Does this make sense to you? This is how God does with us. And all grace-based relationships and grace-filled relationships are is treating the people you love the way God treats the people he loves. That's all it is. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now, by the way, let's get a little context on Ephesians. Paul's letters almost fall together the same way. He always spends the first half building some doctrinal foundation, and then he spends the second half applying. And so Ephesians opens up with the first three, verses, three, three chapters with a lot of doctrine about who we are in Christ and what that all means. And then he goes for... Uh, applying this, and he applies it to the church and the family. In fact, that's where we get our greatest, some of our great teachings on marriage and parenting from, from those chapters of Ephesians. Look at 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, look at this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Last week, Jamie was talking about what, what a, a, a person that really has captured the heart of God looks like. He said, he says, do you have an ongoing, vital, daily relationship with Jesus that gets you out of bed every day, gives you meaning and purpose in life, and drives you in everything you do? And see, when our kids see that in us, as parents and grandparents, things change. So God's love is best transferred through spiritually thriving families, and his love is best captured through churches and homes that reflect his heart. Look at the third point. God's love is best delivered through a well-thought-through strategy that is guided by his truth and tempered by his grace. John 1.14. The word, notice the word is capitalized. It's another name for Jesus. The word became flesh. That's the Bethlehem story. He, do, he lived among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the one and only son from, from the father, full of grace and truth. Not just one, but both. What, by the way, what was the percentage breakdown on those? 50-50? 75? Did it shift based on circumstances? No, it was 100-100. He was filled with 100% truth and 100% grace. So we can't ever think that just because we got the truth message right with our kids and they can give it back to us, we can quiz them on it, that they've got the whole story. We've got to get the grace message in too. And the way we get that in is how we act around them, how we treat them. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, written by the flip-flopper who got renamed by Jesus because of the grace he showed him. And Peter says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. So with that in mind, let me ask you. Let's say, since, since, since family is so important and how we, we live in our families and treat each other in our families is so vital. And God wants us to reflect his heart and especially his heart of grace. Let's say we were out at a diner and I had a napkin and I pulled a pen out. And I said, okay, your parent, your grandparent, please unpack for me. Because when we got something, we really got it. And I know some of you guys, some of you businessmen and women and what you do, I could, I could say to you, show me how you manage a bank. Show me how you principal a school. Show me how you build that widget at your thing. And you could, no problem. You're good at it. So this is a huge thing that he built into creation. 
So if I handed you the thing, say, please uh, unpack for me your overarching seamless strategy philosophy for transferring God's heart of grace into your kids. Here you go. How would you do? If somebody would have handed me this when I first started out in parenting, I would have, I would have said, first of all, I need more napkins. Lots of them. And I would have had stuff thrown all over them. I wouldn't have had any idea how to do this. The only thing that saved my bacon is I realized, wait a minute, God's a parent. He's a father. That's the number one metaphor he's used to, we use of him in the Bible. He's parenting me. I wonder if we can take what he's doing and quantify it in such a way that it becomes a plan for us. And that's exactly what we did. So if somebody were to hand me a napkin or somebody from our church staff here in the family ministry and said, what's your overarching thing? They would take that napkin. Let's put that graphic up there. They'd take that napkin and they'd draw a house. And on that house, above it they would say, I want to treat my kids the same way God treats his, with grace. That's the overarching starting point. And then they'd start down the bottom. I want to start by meeting their, their true inner needs. And then I want to give their heart freedom. God's grace sets our hearts free. And I want to build six character muscles into them. I want to build their character. And then I want to aim them at true greatness. I don't want to aim shallow like our world says to aim at making a bunch of successful kids. You don't need God's help doing that. Anybody could pull that one off. Lousy parents can do that. No, no, no. We want to aim them at something bigger and eternal. True greatness. Then I'd flip it over. I'd flip it over and I'd say, and I'd say okay, those three inner needs. I want to build a secure love, a significant purpose, and a strong hope into their heart. Because that's what God does with me and his grace. I want to set their hearts free by giving them the freedom to be different, vulnerable, candid, and make mistakes. I want to build those six character muscles of faith, integrity, poise, disciplines, endurance, and courage. And then I want to aim them at true greatness. And what is that? True greatness is a passionate love for Jesus Christ that shows itself in an unquenchable love and concern for others. And, 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 and with that, I would give them these four wonderful qualities of the heart, a humble heart, a grateful heart, a generous heart, and a servant's heart. That's what God does with us, and we can do that with our kids. It's, 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 it's broken down for us, and our church is committed to helping you with that. So with that in mind, let's look at the last point here, and that God's love is best leveraged when churches and families operate in partnership. Because the primary responsible for transferring a passionate heart for Jesus to the next generation is on the parents. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and following. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall teach them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That's the role of the home. What about the church? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And he gave apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the rank and file, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, you can either do this by creating codependent relationships with a pulpit or a personality, or we can actually embed this as a church into the hearts of the people that show up. And at Scottsdale Bible, we know we've scored a touchdown. 
When a lay person gets something enough to be able to transform their daily life through God's power without needing the church to do it for them. Corey Shutnik is the, is the um, family, head of the family ministry here at our church, and he has adopted Home Depot's tagline as the tagline for the family ministry here at Scottsdale Bible Church. You can do it. We can help. And they want to help. And our, the ministry here has thought through a, a big plan. Uh, you, you know, in fact, it, it was inspired by one person's trip to Disneyland. I went to Disneyland. When you go to Disneyland, if you've never been here before, they hand you a map of Disneyland. And there's different, there's Tomorrowland and Fantasyland and, and, and Frontierland and all. Well, if you go from one land to the other, you don't wonder, did I just leave Disneyland? You know you've been in Disneyland the whole time because there's a Disney feel to Disney, isn't there? So we thought, okay, what do we want the Disney feel to be at Scottsdale Bible? We want it to be the grace of God, the gracious heart of God. That's why Jamie spent a whole year talking to us about what that looks like. And we want it to completely permeate everything we do here, top down, side to side, front to back, so that we can now help this become the DNA of families and they can take Jesus home. In fact, we put together a map, much like a Disneyland map. We call it Familyland map. Now, you, you, you can't look at all this thing, because, and I'm not going to break it down for you because we don't have the time. But just know that a, a lot of forethought has been put in to, what would, to cover all the bases for you. Those four signs at the top represent those four levels of that house of God's grace. That tempers everything we do. And then they want to come alongside you and coach you and cheer you on as parents and grandparents, as you work through the different things of your, your kids' lives, like baby dedication, giving your kids a clear sense of blessing, educating and preparing them in the areas of love and sex and honor. And by the way, we believe that the parents should be teaching their kids that before Satan does, which means you got to introduce this subject to them a lot earlier, five, six years old. Our church will coach you on how to do that and how to dial in on their unique personality traits and, and, and how, to, how to teach them about money, how to, how to use age 13 as a great rite of passage to help move them, start getting them in position for adulthood, using age 16 as a launch pad to send them in the future. We want to teach you how to prepare them for college, not to fall through the cracks, and how, how to make sure they're ready for marriage. We're ready to do that for you. In fact... To, uh, Saturday after next, on the 20th, we have a, a, a thing here. It's going to be from 9 in the morning to 1 in the afternoon. And, and our, our, our children's pastor is going to un, unpack that house. Everybody will be given a house model for you, to, a card for you to be able to see those things. And you'll be able to go to breakout rooms where you can dial in on specific parts of that thing that relate to who you are. We're going to have two, two breakout things for each parent to go to. So if there's two of you, you can do four. I'm going to do the one on grandparenting. So if any of you grandparents are here, I want to see you there. And you can sign up for that out at the, the book table afterwards. The point is, God wants us to reflect his heart. That was from the beginning, how he meant for it to be transferred. It was spring break, 2020, uh, 20, 2010, just a few years ago. Tara and Todd Stork had taken their family up to Colorado for a ski trip. It was the last afternoon. Their daughter, Tara, wanted to make one last run. She was 13 years old. She went down. Something went wrong. She slipped into the woods. She hit a tree, and she died. 
And so here's parents trying to pack up, getting ready to get back, people back down to Dallas to start school the next day. And now, no, they're on phones talking with funeral homes and planning a funeral for their, their daughter. And their hearts were absolutely broken. And all the doubts and second-guessing that goes with that. Well, the doctors came in and said, your daughter was a very fit girl. Her heart could help somebody. Can we harvest her heart? Patricia Winters lived out in Chandler, Arizona. Her heart was so diseased that she would sleep through the night and she only had the, 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 the energy in the morning to get up and kiss her kids good morning and then go right back to sleep. If she didn't get a new heart, she was done for. And she received Tariff Heart. Now, this is all done very secretly for obvious reasons. You never know where those organs go and who gets them. But we live in the age of the internet. And it's not difficult at all to start figuring out where was a heart transplant done in the United States shortly after this time. And they figured out it was in Tucson, Arizona. They put it all together. And they found out Patricia Winters had their daughter's heart beating in her chest. That heart took. She became a new woman. She had new life. They got a hold of her through emails. They introduced themselves. They explained that they had, she had their daughter's heart. They said, we'd like to meet you. Can we come out and meet you? And they flew out here. But there was, they came out for a reason. There was something they wanted to do, and they brought something with them to do it. These. And, and they just said, we just want to hear our daughter's heart one more time. We want to hear it beating in your, in your chest. And, and so they put these on and they listen to tarot one more time. Now listen, friends. We have diseased hearts. Our hearts were, were destroyed by sin and we could not gain the life and the eternal life we need unless we got a heart transplant. God sent his son. Jesus surrendered his heart to us so we could have a new heart. And God wants to take his stethoscope and put it on our chest. And he wants to hear it. But what does his Jesus heart sound like coming from it? It sounds like kindness. It sounds like mercy. It sounds like hope. And it sounds like, like grace and forgiveness. He wants to hear that. And he wants to hear it showing up where it gets its biggest test at home. And when we do that, friends, everything changes. His kingdom plan works because it works through the family. Scottsdale Bible's here because they believe you can do this in God's power. They want to help. And I hope you'll go out there and talk with them and sign up for that. Meanwhile, we have a chance now to close off our time with just a few minutes of focus on this incredible heart transplant God gave us through the, through the cross by communion. So I want, uh, I want to prepare for communion by prayer, and I'd like our ushers to bring the elements down as we pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the cross. I thank you so much for what you did to set us free. And now, dear Lord, as we come to this sacred time where we remember what you did, we thank you. We thank you for the cross.